Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo Daily, who is GPO Girl? The mysterious case of con artist Samantha Azapardi. In October 2013, the Irish media were convulsed by the story of a 14 year old girl who turned up outside the GPO and didn't speak a single word to Gardaí. If anybody's out here, do you know this child? Have you ever met this child? Have you engaged with this child? Or if you're the parent of this child, we'd ask you to come forward uh, to the dedicated line in Store Street uh, via the phone number or the email or the Garda confidential line. The girl alarmed detectives by drawing a picture of a gun, a plane and a cross. But efforts to identify her proved fruitless until Gardaí publicly released a photograph. And then there was a phone call from a family friend of hers who she'd been staying with down in our county Tipperary, saying, oh yeah, that's Samantha. She was staying at our place three weeks ago. And then the Southern Hemisphere woke up. And uh, that then led to connections to the Australian police who said, yeah, not only do we know who she is, but she has an extensive criminal record in Australia. So they packed her off on the plane back to Australia. That was in uh, November 2013. And the interesting thing is, you know, by May 2014, six months later, she was starting one of the biggest cons that she'd ever try and pull off. She spent almost two decades living a lie. So how do you solve a problem like Samantha? I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Andrew Farrell, executive producer of a new Paramount documentary on Samantha as a party. We here knew her as GPO Girl, but her extraordinary cons went much further than Dublin. Andrew Farrell, I'm fascinated by the story of GPO Girl, but to you in your new documentary, is who is referred to as Con Girl, but can you take us back first to October 2013 outside the GPO, which all our listeners will know in the very heart of Dublin, a very historic site. Yeah, what a strange morning that must have been, Kevin, for a couple of young Garda officers who were on normal patrol down the street there and found this young girl, you know, with a a hoodie jacket over her head, looking frail and disturbed, sitting there you know, just right at the front of the offices there under the, you know, in between some of the columns. And they sort of went to check on her to see if she was okay. And she wouldn't talk. She couldn't talk. And she looked very disturbed. And she just indicated using her fingers that she was 14 years old. She's described as being five foot six in height, slim build, and having a long blonde hair. When she was found, she was wearing a purple hooded top, tight, dark-coloured jeans, 
flat black shoes and a grey woolen jumper. And so they were instantly concerned about her and they took her in to, um, well, I wouldn't say they took her into custody. They took her in to, you know, to check on her and take her to the hospital and see what happened. But she was, she was very, very distressed, basically. And there was, they couldn't work out who she was. There was no identity. Suddenly you had this mysterious young girl. They didn't have any ID. She didn't talk. And so they started to be concerned. And she wasn't eating. It it really was a child welfare case in the eyes of the Gardaí. Now, it turned out to be something very different. But what probably drove it onto the front pages here, and I remember I was working on this in the Evening Herald at the time, she drew a picture which immediately caused great alarm for Gardaí. What she drew was a picture of a cross and a picture of a gun and a picture of a plane. Three very disturbing images for a girl to draw who's ostensibly 14 years old and isn't speaking to you. She's also not eating, as you say. She didn't speak or eat for about three weeks. And they, because they saw those things, they started to escalate. They started to think, well, this is starting to sound pretty serious. A major Garda investigation was launched at Store Street Garda Station into the circumstances surrounding the discovery of this young female. Is she a victim of trafficking? You know, what is going on here? And so they used all of their resources and started an investigation, just checking everything. The investigation has sought the assistance of Missing Persons Bureau, Interpol, Forensic Science Laboratory, the Garda Office of Youth Affairs, Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Unit, Garda National Immigration Bureau, and external agencies. Checking border controls. You know, they even she had some unusual braces on her teeth. They started checking around all dental, you know, uh, hospitals and, you know, dentists around Dublin, just trying to see if there was any kind of connection. The investigation to date has involved over 2,000 man-hours and over 115 lines of inquiry. And eventually, they were pushed to the point where they wanted to release an image of her because that was their last resort. But that put, put them under a lot of pressure because, you know, she was under the, you know, child protection. She was uh, protected under the Child Care Act. She was only 14. So that ended up in a court case. Yeah, and this is something I'd be very familiar with here. We have very strict laws around the identification of children in care. And this child obviously was under the care of, of Tusla and the Gardaí at this point. And so leg- legally, they can't release that image to the media to publish because to do that, you're identifying a child in care. So it was a very unusual position because normally when a child is in care, you know who they are. But in this instance, the Gardaí felt they had no option but to try and find a way to release that photograph. Absolutely. And a very, a very extreme circumstance, you know, and you get no indication that they took this lightly at all. They were absolutely desperate and they understood the circumstances. This was their last resort. And there was a, a battle in the courts, um, but they won that battle. But then the next step was trying to get a photo of her. Because as we later discover in the story of Samantha as a party, she protects her identity because it is one of her greatest weapons is people not realising who she is. So she absolutely refused to have any photos taken of her. Eventually they had to sneak a photo off as they pretended they had to walk her somewhere else. And that's the iconic photo, which is, you know, probably familiar to readers of her newspaper today. And then they released that photo and then there was a phone call from a family friend of hers who she'd been staying with down in uh, County Tipperary saying, oh, yeah, that's Samantha. She was staying at our place three weeks ago. 
that then led to connections to the Australian police who said, yeah, not only do we know who she is, but she has an extensive criminal record in Australia. And that is when the curtain was drawn back and that's when things went nuts on the front pages of every newspaper in Ireland. And it turned out she was actually a 25-year-old. And as you say, she had been staying with family friends in Tipperary up until the point she strangely just decided to leave one day and turned up outside yeah, the GPO. She told them she was just heading off, she was heading off traveling. She was like, I mean, right now there's probably thousands of young Australians backpacking and landing on distant relatives' couches around the country. And she was one of those who said, yep, I've stayed for a week, uh, you know, eating you out of house and home and now I'm moving on. And uh, But it, she just turned off to be going in a very, very different and quite unusual direction. And technically, even though she had lied to Gardy and you could argue that she had wasted Garda time and Garda resources, they decided that she hadn't really broken any laws or that they certainly didn't want to take her through a criminal uh, court. So they boarded her on a plane and, and sent her packing. Yeah, that's right. She They couldn't really find a law that she'd broken. She definitely wasted time. She maybe wasted a couple hundred thousand pounds. Uh, but that was it. There was nothing that she'd really done apart from cause an incredible nuisance, you know. And uh, yeah, so they packed her off on the plane back to Australia. That was in uh, November 2013. And the interesting thing is, you know, by May 2014, six months later, she was starting one of the biggest cons that she'd ever try and pull off. She went back to Australia. She was straight back into it. Well, before we get to that, Andrew, explain to me, who is Samantha as a party? Well, (laughs) that's a question which we're still trying to answer, I would say. She came from a middle-class family, uh, you know, on the outskirts of Sydney and the the outer suburbs of Sydney. Um, She, her parents separated when she was younger. We don't know a hell of a lot about her life, but over the years, you know, some Australian press have been in touch with various people that went to school with her or former bosses. And, you know, she was a smart but slightly unusual girl at school. And she already showed a tendency at school to have some weird kind of smaller lies about things, you know, and about that, you know, her dad's away in America on a mysterious job and things like that. And then, you know, interestingly, she used to work in a pancake restaurant and her boss um, fired up from that restaurant, you know, because she wasn't turning up for work. And she said, uh, she told him she was going to travel the world and donate a kidney. She left home and went around Australia and sort of started all of these small scale cons, you know, which again, you'd, they're hard to call cons because she was never trying to get money from people. She wasn't doing anything sexual with people. All she sort of got from them was often the means to do her next con or to be sort of have a lot of attention on her as well, I think was one of her other motives. But, you know, so began a pattern which ran for over 10 years. Well, let's talk about that because what I find kind of interesting about this is for those three or four weeks around October 2013, this story was on the front of the news pages day after day after day until eventually we found out who this, we thought, 14-year-old girl was. But perhaps we haven't followed the story after that in the way that you have in your, your new documentary because 
she has so many different personas and so many different scams on the go. Talk me through some of the other things she did after, well, before and after being in Ireland. There's 75 aliases that she's used that we know of. I suspect there are many, many more than that. I suspect a lot of her stuff hasn't, you know, hit the press or hit the uh, hit the uh, hit law enforcement. So she was constantly, constantly creating multiple aliases which would run at the same time. Prior to her being in Dublin, two years before that, in 2011, she was in Perth in Western Australia. And she insinuated herself into a family. And in that family was a young woman called Hope, who we interview in the documentary. And they became friends. And then Samantha started staying at her house. They became, she became like a new sort of best friend, like a bigger sister to young Hope. I never really felt like anything was off with her stories. I think kids have a way of exaggerating their stories to make them seem better. And when you're trying to impress someone that you've just met, why wouldn't you exaggerate slightly? Sam was 23 at that time, but she was saying that she was 15. And she told Hope and her family her name was Emily Scabera. She told her she was an international level gymnast and that she was just a Russian gymnast and that she was just staying in Perth for a while because her parents were overseas. And then she'd, she'd created an elaborate website, you know, to set this up so, you, you know, you could check on Facebook and everything was up to scratch. Then she was in with this family and she suddenly told them, oh my God, I have to go because my parents have been killed and so has my twin sister back in France. So Emily went to Paris on December the 16th to see her family. Not long after, I saw a post on her Facebook gymnast page. I believe it was a friend of the family who posted a link to an article. The article stated that her parents had passed away in a double murder suicide, with her dad killing her twin sister, mother, and then himself. And then she disappears for a while. Then she's in touch with Hope's parents and Hope's parents were very generous people and they'd become very close to her. They offered to adopt her. So they were ready to adopt her into her family. All of this is a lie. And then she starts enrolled at local high school with the family, everything's set up to go. And then all of her papers were found to be fraudulent by the school. And then the police became involved and she was arrested. And the whole rug was pulled out from this poor young girl who thought she'd found this A, a great new friend, but then B, someone who'd gone through this insane tragedy of parents being murdered and her twin sister being murdered. It was all, it was all fake. Yeah, I, I was devastated at the time, definitely. I was very angry and I was very betrayed. I think when you try and do your best and you try and help people and you have it all thrown back in your face... Like, it is, it is heartbreaking. She was arrested and charged and then disappeared out of their lives. And next stop, so that was February 2012. And then in October the next year, she turns up in Dublin. I think that's why she's been able to continue for so long. She pops up, she disappears, she turns up in another country. She never does anything that's so serious you can be in prison for a long time. So there are always these minor misdemeanors, like in Dublin, something that didn't even warrant a charge. So she always can move on to the next thing and never be stopped. And I think importantly, 
never receive any kind of treatment as well to try and sort of stop her doing this. A year later, she turned up in Canada, claiming to be 14-year-old Aurora Hepburn. The woman told investigators she'd endured years of violent sexual abuse and torture. Authorities there spent almost $200,000 before determining she was a sham and charging her with public mischief. That's one of the other kind of unusual things about this, that it was a whole bunch of little tiny bizarre disconnected cons all over, you know, Australia, Ireland, Calgary, I suspect many other places. And it took a long while before it all coalesced into a pattern that everyone started to realise, hey, it's this same girl doing the same thing all over again. Tell me about her time as Anika Dieker, the Swedish teenager. Yeah, well, that was a very, that was what she did after she'd uh, got off the plane back from Dublin. And she befriended a young uh, American backpacker in Sydney. And, you know, this girl, Emmy, she meets this girl. She thinks she's unusual at first, a little bit different. And the, the other kind of people staying with them in the hostel, they weren't so sure about her. But I think Annika zoomed in on Emmy that Emmy was like wide-eyed, travelling, ready to believe anything. And then she started to kind of weave her spell and started to say, my parents are actually super wealthy, you know, and I get shuttled around the world everywhere like that. I've got this mysterious, incredible thing. And then she doubles down on that and said, actually, they're not wealthy, they're spies. And I'm in protection. I have minders which look after me. They work for Interpol. And so Emmy's like, wow. And she just got taken in by this, you know, and, and I think she has, a, I think Samantha has a real power to pick people and the circumstances where it is all believable. And she spins just enough of the story to make it all, all feel true and has just enough evidence to make that happen. Then she doubles down again and says, there's people chasing me. And the people chasing me know about you, Emmy, as well. And somehow she's able to kind of drop certain bits of evidence about Emmy's life that made Emmy believe her. And I think that's because she was quite a sophisticated sort of user of computers and finding information from people off social media, which is something which is very familiar to us today. But I think back then, 10 years ago, everyone was very naive to the dangers of having your personal information on the internet. But Sam is well ahead of the curve. And that was the level of sophistication that she operated at. And that was what she was able to spin this complex web around Emmy and really draw into some quite extraordinary adventures. We could probably do this all day, Andrew. We could go through Coco and Layla and Emily <laughs> yeah. and Harper. But tell me one more that's story. Why took, that's why it took us four hours to do to tell the documentary, Kevin. Let's give listeners one more. Tell me the story of the French backpacker who got a very unexpected phone call from Australian police. Lucy was the same as Emmy. She's backpacking in Sydney. She meets this, uh, you know, she meets this girl on a sort of a Facebook sort of friend group of, you know, travellers in Bondi. And they start hanging out and they become friends. And then um, Sam's operating under the name Layla Evans at the time. And she just asks Lucy to do a couple of like, I'm just playing a prank on my brother. You know, he, he loves these pranks. Can you, can you do a phone call? We're going to set up a surprise party. And Lucy's, yeah, sure. You know, I love these kind of things. But, you know, she asked her to make this very weird phone call where she has to recite all this medical information and talk about a scan and say, yes, this confirms that the patient, you know, is actually age 13. What she's actually doing is setting up another elaborate persona that Sam's operating in parallel. Lucy just thinks it's all a bit of a joke. She finishes it, she hangs up the phone 
that's it. She does another one as another joke. And it, at the time, Lucy thinks this is a really weird joke, but whatevs. Sam disappears from her life. Lucy goes back to Europe until, um, I'm not sure how long later, might have been like six months to a year later, a whole other investigation which was connected to the um, fake identity was setting up traces the phone calls and finds a phone call that goes back to Lucy. And so they find that Lucy's tied up in this stuff and then Lucy gets a call when she's back in Europe from an Australian detective saying you're implicated in, you know, a possible kidnapping case with Samantha. And that was a complete, you know, absolute shock <laughs> to her, as you could expect. But that she could have easily slipped past that and never have known that she'd had an encounter with, with Sam as well. I think there's a lot of people out there, probably a lot of backpackers, who had similar experiences. It strikes me after her time in Ireland, there was a certain level of sympathy in the sense that you would have to be quite disturbed to have done what she did here and to sit in a police station and a hospital for days on end and not speak. It takes a certain level of discipline. But you mentioned, Andrew, that from your work on this, you found no financial motive to any of this. There was no sexual motive. Like, what's the, why was she doing all of this? I think it does come back down to a, you know, she has quite a complex and unique, you know, set of, uh, you know, mental illnesses, basically, of kind of compulsions that acting together have created this very strange situation and she's never had treatment for them as well. So, I, you know, I do feel a lot of sympathy for her and I, while at the same time knowing that she has caused a lot of trauma, very significant trauma to the people that she's uh, done some of these cons to. She's had 100 charges in Australia. She had her 100th at the end of last year. And there's been a lot of attempts to get her to get into some sort of... Um, care or help but she always slips out she's not being held no one can really force her to do that and she disappears and then she just keeps doing it again and again which is obviously very smart as well because i'd be exhausted trying to keep up all those different aliases all those names she had multiple passports multiple ids like that kind of thing doesn't it's not easy to have multiple passports and to play play the system like that very, very sophisticated, incredibly sophisticated in her use of social media and way ahead of her time. She's definitely smart, sophisticated, an incredible actor. You know, to spend that amount of time with the Garda, you know, pretending that she couldn't speak and, and not eating, it's extraordinary. She did that in Australia as well. She spent a long time in a school in Australia pretending that she was illiterate when she was absolutely literate and she was 10 years older than she was pretending to be, you know, and that rocked that school. Some of those teachers who'd worked with her were absolutely shattered by that knowledge and that she'd kept up that for so long. And Andrew, finally, do we know where she is now and is she likely to stop in this age of documentaries and the internet? It, it's much harder to go under the radar now. So what is what is, what is she doing now? She was um, on remand for her last kind of set of small-scale cons in Sydney so she was imprisoned up until the 15th of December last year when she was released on parole. And we don't know where she went after that. But I think you're right, it is getting harder and harder for her. And the last few times she's pretended to be a nanny in Sydney, people have found her out. People know her image. Um, she pretends she wants to work as an au pair, which is starting to get into 
much more serious kind of offending. She showed up on the radar in Victoria in December 2019, arrested in Bendigo after walking into a mental health clinic dressed as a schoolgirl with two young children in tow. She claimed she was a pregnant 14-year-old who had been abused by her uncle. It turned out the children belonged to a French couple who had hired as a party as a live-in nanny. She was convicted of child stealing. It's one thing to sort of do a few fun things with the backpacker. It's another thing to take care of someone's children and get into their, you know, their home and stuff. I think this documentary, I think that is why a lot of her victims, or I call them survivors, have participated in this documentary. They cannot believe that all these years later, she's still doing it. And they hope by telling their stories and by getting her story out there around the world, it's just going to make it a little bit harder for her and that she can finally sort of get the the help that she needs. Andrew Farrell, thank you very much. And the new documentary, Con Girl, can be seen on Paramount+. Plus. Thank you very much. Cheers. My thanks to Andrew Farrell, executive producer of Con Girl, which you can see now on Paramount+. Plus. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by JJ Clark, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips were from Con Girl on Paramount Plus, RTE News, News Talk FM, and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review.